This is the Weekend Variety Once on Radio Live. I want to play you a winter sound. This ha- somehow it only happens in winter. A suburban backyard. It has to be still, not windy. Quite cold. Very, very grey. Not leaden about to rain. Just as though there was never a blue sky. It's that permanent feeling of that grey. Still grey day. And this... A single thrush. Well, it's a synthesizer too, doesn't it? If you're listening on the podcast, welcome along to hour three of Saturday night, July the 7th. Ringo's birthday on July the 9th. Okay, we're dedicating uh, this hour to the film festival. We're not going to go into detail about specific films for this entirety. That would be laborious. We're talking about the history of the film festival itself with its longtime director, Bill Gosden. Plenty of controversies. And gosh, he's done a great job for us all, hasn't he? I think if you enjoy cinema, it's been a great thing. 50 years of it. Bill Gosden, up next. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. The New Zealand International Film Festival is just about underway. July, oh, from the top of my head, July 19th, I think it is. Bill Gosden's on the line. Hi, Bill. Hi, Graham. Uh, It's a wonderful thing, the New Zealand International Film Festival. Along with, you know, every four years, the World Cup, a lot of people (laughs) take time off work and plan their annual leave. I know people that do around the New Zealand International Film Festival. That's the kind of cultural success it's been. It's 50 years of this thing. So we're not going to be talking about um, reviewing particular... um, showcases that are coming up. We're just talking about the cultural phenomenon of 50 years of the New Zealand International Film Festival. So take a bow, Bill. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was the, the first one that I had any involvement with, which was quite peripheral, was actually the 11th film festival. I was um, working at the Wellington Film Festival then, and they provided quite a few of the films that played in Auckland. Um, so I was assisting Lindsay Shelton, who was the director of the Film Festival in Wellington, and I was uh, learning all about um, customs um, and shipping and getting prints from one side of the world to the other and often to Auckland. So that was my very first contact. The first contact of the New Zealand International Film Festival anyway uh, must have been... um 
Uh, an interesting thing to try and get up and running. Okay, 1969, we're talking uh, culture in New Zealand. There were uh, tremendous enclaves of culture in New Zealand, but uh, nobody could sniff them out, really, unless you were in the know. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's true. Um, it's interesting, we've been researching... Um, Finding the Auckland Star entertainment um, ad advertisements from um, the opening weekends of various um, film festivals over the years just to create a bit of a snapshot of what the cultural um, environment was like. And actually, the first year there, there were vast number of cinemas in Auckland um, and that was in the days when all the new movies played in Queen Street and then in the suburbs there were you know films from the last year the, the films had, had a much longer life in those days but there was also plenty in the way of um, classical music particularly um, you know there was quite a lot going on um, and it was also quite a good time for movies there were interesting movies screening in mainstream cinemas in those days but they all tended to be in the English language and the film festival the first film festival had 14 titles of it two of them were English 12 of them um, were foreign language films and David Cronenberg's first feature too yeah yeah I think that really impresses me that um, that shows um, amazing foresight um, most of the other films there was a British film called the Bofors gun which uh, is not a film I'm familiar with um, the European films that were on the program uh, most of them are still films that people watch and talk about in cinephile circles um, but to have the first Cronenberg film shows uh, that there was a kind of youthful spirit involved in the um, original uh, group that put the film festival together. Uh, apologies, I don't think I told you exactly who Bill Gosden is, the director of the New Zealand International Film Festival and has been for a long time, an outrageous success. Um, okay. Roger Horrocks was part of that original crew in 1969. He'd be a familiar name to a lot of people in the yeah, uh, right. film and culture circles. Yes, indeed. I mean, he set up the first film studies course in New Zealand, which was um, definitely a breakthrough at the time. Um, and he's a huge encourager of um, some of the most notable talents coming up um, in the late 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, he's been a, a really uh, major, major force for civilising um, the film world in New Zealand. Um, and he was the youngster on that um, committee. I think he's the only surviving member of the founding group. When you're dealing with cinema, uh, the moving pictures, uh, the, the senses, were, and, and social proclivities as well, um, you would have butted right up with the New Zealand International Film Festival. Can you cite some controversial titles that were screened, bannings, things like that, outrage, riots? <laughs> yes, certainly. Um, the festival in the early 80s, uh, which was before I was directly involved, I was just involved in the capacity I described to you before, as it was kind of just shipping films to them. Um, but in the early 80s, the before Arthur Everard, the very controversial film censor, um, decided that there was no reason why explicit pornography shouldn't be passed... Mm. Um, anybody who was looking for that kind of um, diversion um, might have looked to the film festival. And the film festival in Auckland was um, pretty eager to provide um, that kind of movie. And 
by about 1983, um, the kind of avid promotion of the RFF R20 certificate, which was a certificate the censor used to restrict films to screening only to festival audiences. Um, sometimes in the festival programs, you find the certificate printed larger than the actual film title. <laughs> there was <laughs> there was the degree to which um, the the festival in Auckland was promoting those films. And in 1983, it was really um, it really w- reached a point where there was a quite strong and very well organised. Um, feminist protest um, about the film festival, um, which I have to say, with the benefit of hindsight, was r- reasonably well justified. I mean, they were there's a um, program note in the 1983 program for a David Hamilton um, film. I don't know. Do you remember David Hamilton? He was a yeah. he was a photographer who um, specialised in photographing um, young very young women really mm. um and the way the film is written up in that program i think uh nobody would dare um put that kind of um description forward uh, uh, in the current era for very good reason right so there was definitely a lot of controversy around the festival um in the early 80s for that um reason later on um the film censor Jane Wrightson, who was the film censor who was installed after Arthur, and in many ways the new legislation she had to work with was a bit of a a reaction to Arthur's kind of radical um, treatment of, of 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 sex, particularly in the movies. Um, she banned Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Um, then probably the next... Well, d- tell us about Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer because we kind of know how uh, wild and confronting that was. But yeah. what made it so bristling and create such a reaction? Tell people. I, I, my theory has always been that the film dealt with the kind of grisly reality of that kind of violence. Um, you've got to remember at the same time, uh, The Silence of the Lambs was, you know, a huge box office hit and, you know, Oscar winner. Um, and that film is pure fantasy, of course, with a, you know, with a very, very charismatic villain. Um, Henry, sort of down and dirty and uh, much more authentic. And I think that's what was troubling about the film. I often think that when it comes to violence, it's the most realistic violence that seems to um, set off the alarms for the senses, and I don't quite get that, really. No, that's, isn't that strange? It's like, let's sanitise it, and that's OK, when it yeah. actually is, it could be a psychological, social backfire. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm not an expert on the subject, but it does seem to me that, you know, there's the acceptable Oscar-winning um, serial killer, and then there's the one that's a bit more like the real thing, and he's the guy we have to keep out of sight. Yeah, yeah, too much. Well, if it's a difficult watch, uh, there's no doubt it's a difficult yeah, it watch. Yeah, it's, it's a tough film. Yeah. It is a tough film, but I was I was very disappointed by that decision at the time. Yeah. Um, Actually, that makes me... I just wanted to mention something about... People... People may recoil, but I really hope you get my point. Now, just the thing with the David Hamilton, not so much with um, uh, his particular work, but um, young people, um, pubescent or prepubescent people, it is now utterly a total 
no-go zone yeah, because, um, you know, of, of you know, the, um, the thing of exploitation, paedophiles, all that, all that sort of thing. I think it may have a bit of a backfire as well, artistically, that their bodies are banned, uh, that they um, are somehow uh, evil, not good, yeah. bad, yeah, yeah. a bad yeah. thing. I agree with that. Have you seen Germaine Greer's famous book about um, young boys in, 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 in classical art? It's a pretty interesting, well, typically of Germaine Greer, it's a bit of a diatribe. Yeah. Um, it's a very beautifully um, illustrated book. Um, but the David Hamilton films definitely um, had a, a leering quality about them, okay. as I recall. Yeah, yeah. Certainly the books did. I don't know if I ever saw one of the films, to tell the truth, but I definitely was familiar with the books mm. that were um, on a few coffee tables and that, uh, you know, back in the late 70s and early 80s. Oh, right, so four sort of thing, yeah. I don't know. Well, anyway, there was a, there was a famous artist a few years ago um, uh, exhibiting Australia. I think he's Australian. Pardon me, can't forget the name. But it did involve... Pictures yes, yes, of, I know exactly who you mean. Yeah, and he was banned. I mean, yeah, yeah. That, David Marr wrote an excellent book about that case. Ah. Um, I mean, it's I, difficult, but we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Is what I mean. No, no, it's a, it's it's a, it's a hard line for film censors to tread off, and yeah. they will make the most conservative choices. Is there any validity, do you think, in having an RFF, meaning R20, that, oh, it's just the film festival that you're allowed to go and see these things on? Because it reminds me of the first publication of Lady Chatterley's Lover. They only printed it in hardback because they thought it was in paperback. Uh, the working classes will get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a bit of a hangover, um, and it's not a classification that's been invoked very frequently. There was one case about three or four years ago and I noticed that a lot of commentators were very scathing about the fact that uh, the film festival audience um, was somehow going to be morally superior to um, mm. to uh, an ordinary multiplex audience. It's not a um, point of view that I've uh, ever um, encouraged myself. Mm. Okay, one of the real highlights and special times is when we get live along with the cinema and hearing orchestras give the soundtrack or, or you know to silent movies or whatever it, it's just a, a neat thing when did that kick off uh the first year we did that was our last year at the st james before the civic was reopened and we did it with uh, peter skulls and his orchestra the auckland chamber orchestra and it was quite wonderful um it was the eric von stroheim film um, the Wedding March, which is a film that really surprises contemporary audiences because it's such a cynical film. The whole idea of a happy Hollywood ending is uh, kind of blown out of the water mm. quite magnificently by that film from the 1920s. Um, and since then, um, we've been able to do it every year with the Auckland uh, Philharmonia Orchestra. We tend to do it on the last Sunday of the festival at the Civic. Um, and it's absolutely one of my favourite things about uh, the film festival, uh, keeping those films um, alive. I mean, I think there are still quite a few films um, from that era that can connect with a, a, an audience almost 100 years later. Um, there's plenty that don't, of course, and we tend to avoid those. You know, some of the, some of the, the dramas uh, just seem kind of too melodramatic, almost ridiculous. Yeah. But the comedies, of course, are, are, are wonderful. And this year we're celebrating with the uh, one of the all-time greats, one of my 
favourite films, and that's uh, Buster Keaton and the General. It's a marvellous thing, isn't it? It is. It's and amazing how new, moving uh, uh, the, the silent format can be. It is, and this new restoration of the film, it looks as though it was shot yesterday. Oh. It's, uh, it's uh, breathtaking. All right. Um, the Civic, it was going to be pulled down. This is an Auckland theatre, people, and it's just so loved now. We're so lucky to have it. It's labyrinthine. It's like a building you experience in a dream. And it's just so beautiful. And yeah. that's been the permanent home for, what, 18 years? Uh, yes, yeah, since the refurbishment. And it's been the primary venue of the festival, I think, for 34 of the 50 years. The first year the Civic was used... Um, it was, the festival had been advertised in a smaller cinema and they just kept selling out, so they transferred it um, to the Civic. Um, I think that was about 1978. Mm. Um, and it's, for a while we used to hop back and forth between the St James across the road, which was a great place to have the festival, uh, not least because there were three other cinemas under the same roof and we could just take over the complex, yeah. um, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then in 2000, uh, when the Civic became available to us, um, got to um, acknowledge how enormously helpful Bob Harvey was um, to us at that time because there were those who thought that the uh, role of the Civic as a uh, cinema uh, was, was not um, something that needed to be considered in the refurbishment because obviously we all know what a fabulous venue it is for live events but um, we were um, part of a group that lobbied very hard uh, for cinema facilities to be installed there and for the film festival to have a permanent home there. And if anyone visits Auckland, that goes under the radar a bit. Go to the Civic. I think it's a tremendous tourist attraction. Should be. It's a, you can't experience yeah, it anywhere else. Absolutely. It's uh, interesting when you're um, uh, hanging around in the foyer, as I love to do when I'm in um, Auckland at the Civic. Uh, the number of people who wander in who may not have much interest in um, a film festival, but a fiendishly interested in the festival and want to see every, sorry, in the, in, the, in the venue and want to see every nook and cranny of the place. OK, let's get back to some more controversy. Uh, 2002, um, there was a legal battle to get a film shown and it ended up being a last-minute affair. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, the Society for the Promotion of Community Standards, as they like to um, think of themselves, I used to call them the Society for the Promotion of Fear and Ignorance, um, they found a, uh, a facility in the law that enabled them to object to a, a film censorship classification. Um, and then once they had um, lodged their objection and lodged an appeal, they would then go to the uh, Film Review Board and demand that the film be withdrawn from screening until such time as the review could be held. And they were using this facility quite strategically um, to block screenings. Um, even like a legal filibuster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they succeeded with um, a couple of films in Ant Timpson's incredibly strange film festival um, that year. And 
they lined up the two films we had on opening night. One was an amazing, wonderful Mexican film, um, E Tu Mama Tambien. Um, and the other one was the piano teacher, the film with Isabel Huppert as a, a piano teacher you wouldn't really want to have. And the review board reserved their reserved publicizing their decision until five o'clock on the day of the screening and it was incredibly nerve-wracking time we'd sold 1800 tickets to itumama tembien at the civic and we didn't know until two and a half hours before the screening that it could actually go ahead um i know that um I remember I was kind of euphoric when that decision hit and um, they couldn't get me off the stage uh-huh. <laughs> at the beginning of the screening. I was just um, beside myself with uh, with relief and uh, victory over these um, bigots, really. I mean, they're people who hadn't seen the film. They just didn't like the sound of it. Oh, um, right, right. Uh, must they have been hadn't seen it. It was a film that had been passed by the censors in Singapore. I mean, what? it was it was not um, there's nowhere in the world that I'm aware of that the film was that the film was um, banned. So it, it was uh, hair raising. They didn't stop after that. I mean, they kept coming at us with um, various films. No, they didn't ever actually have a successful appeal. So they were. The thorns in the side of the film festival, but also in the sides of the classification office. They were really, really um, having a go at the censors' office and trying to kind of invalidate the decisions coming out of there. And the film festival, of course, is always a, a great um, playing field for these kind of controversies. These things do often get aired around film festivals all over the world. Yeah, and the incredibly strange film festival, which was like a beautiful satellite to the the big one, has uh, now been ad- adopted and, and part of it has been enveloped in. And New Zealand, uh, sorry, the uh, incredibly strange festival, hats off, Ant Timpson, that's attracted one hell of a lot of controversy, as you'd expect. Yeah, yeah, yes. Well, um, Ant was uh, certainly... Um, Earlier on, he was definitely a controversy magnet. So he was, um, for people like the Society for the uh, Promotion of Community Standards, um, he was like the red rag waving in their face. Yeah. Um, he he loved to um, he, he he loved to rile them and um, stir them into action. The Society of I don't like it, so I don't think you should see it. Was that a fair summary? Do you think? Yeah, definitely. all right and just a technical thing a practical practicality thing logistics um in the day it's it's only been uh relatively a short while since it would have been actual cans with celluloid in them and how precious that cargo must have been yeah, yeah. Although some of it was a bit battered by the time it got to us. The um, films that showed in that first film festival in 1969, some of those films would have been out around the world for, you know, a good three years before they got before they got to Auckland. Um, now, that's not such a problem. I mean, um, quite a few of the films this year will have just been um, streamed to us. You know, they will have come down, been downloaded. Um, stuck on a file and 
they will look as uh, splendid as anything you've ever seen on those huge screens. Well, ten, 29 from Cannes this year in the, for this uh, film festival. And you do have two 35mm prints. Yeah, we do, because uh, part of the celebration of the 50th in Auckland is to bring in some, not necessarily greatest hits from the past, but a few films that occurred to me would um, still be of interest to people and that were available in good copies. Um, quite a few of them are uh, beautiful new digital restorations, but there's two films, um, Raise the Red Lantern, which was a huge hit back in the 90s, um, and The Atlantic, which is an incredibly um, visually spectacular Swedish documentary. Um, both of those are highly recommended to us that the best way to see those would still be with a good archival 35mm print rather than with a digital copy. And happily at the Civic Theatre, we still have the facilities to show those films. And the projectionist, there's a craft. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, um, that's a job that's changed a great deal in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's also a relationship that, that's changed a lot in the in the early days of the film festival. Uh, the projectionists hated the film festival. Um, the projectionists were the most kind of hidebound and impenetrable and ruthless trade union that I ever um, crossed swords with. Um, it was a very, um, very, very, very protected. It was a long apprenticeship. Um, and they were the best paid people working in cinemas, that's for sure, and they would often threaten to go on strike as soon as the school holidays hoved into view. Wow. Um, and um, they were very used to, you know, showing the same film four times a day for, you know, weeks at a time, and along comes the film festival, and every film needs to be screened in a different, with a different lens or a different, um, uh, a different plate, and... They just hated that, most of them. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but um, <laughs> there are terrible stories of um, projectionists locking the festival organisers out of the projection box of, you know, films screening in the wrong order or the um, uh, projectionists deciding that they were, all films were going to be shown exactly the same ratio, leading to scenes that many people actually seem to remember of going to the film festival and seeing films projected with the boom showing. Um, uh. And thinking this was an indication of a, you know, of a cheap and shoddy film production, when actually it was uh, just evidence of um, bad projection, because uh. many films were printed with that um, visual information still in them, and it needed to be masked off um, by the projectionist. The secret world of the projectionist. How amazing! <laughs> yeah, I had a friend who called the projectionists the masochists amongst film lovers, um, and I was kind of. I understood what he meant. Um, those things have um, those things have changed a lot. They really have. Next up, folks, we're going to be speaking with Malcolm Turner. He's the curator of the animation side, which is uh, another uh, like enclave, which has been absorbed and celebrated in the New Zealand International Film Festival. Well, there's some amazing sort of, stuff. Yeah, the animation thing with Malcolm is hasn't been absorbed so much as grown within the film festival because um, I do believe that um, we gave Malcolm his first um, animation programming job, ah. and, and now he's. Um, now he's a, a very big deal in that world. Um, he, he's uh, 
very well known. He's been very successful, and I'm delighted that he continues to provide us with such great animation programs. Yeah, it looks flat, fab. We'll, we'll uh, speak with him very shortly. But Bill Gosden, hats off, and uh, anyone, I think, who increases the sum total of joy in the world, um, that's a great achievement. So good on you. OK, well, it's uh, very nice to hear. Thanks, Graham. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. At the New Zealand International Film Festival, a regular feature um, is the animation enclave, you could call it that. And because of the length of these things, they're kind of curated into various clumps with a general theme. Some may cross over into each other, but it's a fabulous uh, genre of film art. Malcolm Turner is the curator of this. We spoke with you last year about uh, the animation side of things as well. Mm, on the phone, but really, really pleased to be sitting in the hot chair with you, Graham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice to see you at long last mm. as well. Um, for those that didn't listen to that interview and take notes and take tests afterwards, <laughs> uh, let's do the statutory your background do, or did you just start watching cartoons as a kid and never stopped uh, well uh, all of the above really i yeah like like i think probably anybody surely there's nobody that's not familiar with mickey mouse or bugs bunny or all that kind of stuff when they were growing up that's one kind of animation my background is actually as a, a, a failed theater director i studied theater studies at otago university all those years ago and the plan was to um, leave there and, and take on the world, become a world-beating theatre director. And um, the plan hit um, the rock wall of reality and that I wasn't very good at it. Um, and one of the problems that I had was that I, my, my sense, what I wanted to do in theatre was, was come up with these, these theatre pieces that were stranger, went to, went to the very edge of, 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 of the imagination, if you like. And... In theatre, you have to deal with the rules of physics at some point. You know, you do hit all those things. In animation, none of those things are true. And I was actually teaching a class in Portland, Oregon, where I lived, and we were, it was a class on theatre, and we were talking about this issue or this problem of trying to move your play, your audience, your, your cast, and even your set from one place to a very different place within the confines of of what you were facing and there was this esoteric conversation and, and somebody at the back said look you sh you you're in the wrong field man you should be in animation which surprised me because i thought i knew animation and he brought in a vhs tape remember those mm -hmm. vhs brought in a vhs tape the next day they had a film on it called mindscape by jacques duran which you can see online made in 1976 about seven minutes long took five years to make and it's made on a pin screen and it's nothing but it's six minutes of just one thing moving to another. A cloud becomes a mountain, a mountain becomes a river, the river becomes a forest, the forest becomes a horse, the horse becomes a house, the house burns down, goes on and on and on. And I'd never seen animation like it completely opened my eyes to animation. So started really looking into this and it was, you know, it was just, as a result of that I got the job as the animation program at the um, New Zealand International Film Festival in the mid-90s and I've programmed animation for them ever since and I now work on festivals all over the world. It's been a wonderful, a wonderful ride and you know back in, back in those days I think we got 400, 450 submissions or something like that and we were fashioning two or three programs. You roll forward to where we are now and this year we've got just under 4,400 submissions. Good God. So, you know, the, the, the art form has diversified. The technology has certainly changed in those 20, 25 years, as has the number of people making this stuff. And at a certain 
point, you know, if you're the New Zealand International Film Festival or or any organisation that that you know stakes a claim on displaying um, a form of culture, you have to. St- you have to follow that reality in a certain sense. So hence the, the, the couple of animation programs that we've had in the film festival over the last few years have now morphed into what is you know going to be really a standalone animation festival and hence these six programs. Yeah, it's, it's a little got. festival within the festival, That's right, it? yeah, it's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did say, did you just uh, start watching cartoons and never stop? It was purposely um, a diminishment <laughs> of the art form because <laughs> it's uh, animation is can be as higher art as you like, can't it? it Absolutely, and that's what I love about it. And in fact, you know, when you when you look at some of the stuff that comes in, uh, uh, something like a solid quarter of those submissions are completely abstract, mm. utterly abstract, no narrative at all, not even represent represent representational um, kind of visual elements of it. Almost none of the stuff that comes in is a um, a straight narrative, a beginning, middle and end theatrical kind of narrative because that's not actually a particularly good use of animation. Animation is this, it's what I was talking about before, it's this thing that allows you to make these giant, otherwise completely impossible um, imaginative jumps. And I, I liken myself, I liken this kind of animation to poetry for example yeah, so yeah. In the, so in the same way that you know the i mean animation is such an interesting term it sort of describes what what we do it sort of doesn't it's a little bit like writing so you know if somebody tells me they're a writer are they a journalist you know they might be a great journalist and a lousy poet they might be a poet and have got no interest in kind of passing over facts animation is also this very very broad church yeah yeah um the question today is what is animation with technology being at the level that it's at and moving forward faster well I, look I, <laughs> one of the one of the one of the ways that people in my community while away um, otherwise completely productive hours and hours and nights and nights of their life is trying to you know we get into discussions about where does the boundary between animation and special effects you know, where is that right. drawn? You know, was Lord of the Rings an animated film because it had so many special effects? There's no real answers to no. that. There's no rights and wrongs. And and that's why you can discuss it forever and a day. Animation, though, in my mind, is is essentially the recreation one frame at a time of simulated movement. So by whatever means you, um, you've set out to use, whether it's puppets, whether it's claymation, whether it's hand drawings, whether it's using a computer. Frame you, at a time, though. Frame at a time. So And it's the simulation. It's the re- recreation or the re-simulation of movement right time. is there still an inherent respect for the old school and the old school techniques oh yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and that's that's what um animation now festival is all about so you're talking i mean so much of the stuff that we get is handmade handmade hand that's drawn. an entire section that's actually, an entire section and and in fact in in truth the handmade program obviously all the films and that are handmade but they're actually handmade films scattered right throughout the other programs as well mm. so you look at for example you look at one of the programs we're doing is called um fresh eyes in estonia which is a look at the new generation the current generation of estonian animators and and one of the most interesting films in the entire festival closes that particular program a film called manavald by Chintas Lundgren and she would be 
early 30s. It's a co-production with the National Film Board of Canada um, who don't do co-productions, you know, without a serious kind of intent to make a great film. And that entire film is all hand-drawn. She, you know, Chintis draws her, her pictures on um, something that's about her, her, the paper she uses is about halfway between a postcard and an A4 sheet of paper. Good God. And um, all hand-drawn, all mm. hand-drawn. And she uses, yeah, she uses that, that in photograph digitally. She will use use computers to help kind of balance out colour variations and obviously use computers to put soundtracks and things on, but hand-drawn, thousands and thousands. We still get we still get any number of films that are um, uh, hand-scratched directly onto film stock and things like that. There's a lot of that stuff still being made. What is the deal with Estonia and animation? They gold medal. They are gold medal. They're, they're a standalone um, uh, country in terms of uh, the uniqueness of Estonian animation. In the, and, but it's there's a there's a there's been a change really in a sense. So, the, the Estonia, uh, for people that don't know where it is, you kind of get to Finland and turn right. So it's one of the Baltic states. So you have Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And up until 1991, they were behind the Iron Curtain. They were essentially occupied by what was the USSR. And um, for the first I don't know 40, 50 years of their their history, most of their animation carried these incredibly coded, subversive critiques of, ah. of what it's like to live in that world. And one of the things that made it a little bit unique was that Estonia was just left in a little bit more peace than some of the other countries that are occupied by the USSR, so they were able to get away with a little bit more. And they had people like Prit Pan, who's acknowledged as just one of the true all-time, he's still alive, but, but one of the true masters of, of animation. And his films, you know, Breakfast on the Grass and Hotel E and things like that, they're masterpieces. So... Pre-independence, Estonian animation had all of these things in it. Estonians have an incredibly strong cultural connection to puppets and toys. So mm. their puppet animation, Nuku Film Studio, for example, Nuku is is Estonian for for puppet, um, is is probably the best puppet animation studio in the world. Estonia is one of the few places, probably the only place, that has a full-time multi-stage um, professional puppet theatre. Good God. You know, it's going all the time. Um, the, the Tartu Toy Museum is one of the, one of the greatest toy museums in the mm. world. So they have this incredibly strong connection with this stuff, and it's unique. The drawn style is completely unique. The puppet style is completely unique. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. So they did have a bit of a, a Bradman slash Hillary of the <laughs> of the animation world with yeah. that cat you mentioned that I can't remember his name. Pardon me. Um, now, I have a little wish in my head mm. that some graphic artists and fine artists would have been just amazing to see what they could have done animation-wise if they had the patience and dedication to do it. Salvador Dali made a, a, an he animated did. film with Walt Disney. That's <laughs> great. It doesn't get much stranger than that. No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But I just wonder what Picasso might have been able to do. Picasso's influenced a good a good number, So, yeah. but no. Um, and others that are more close to that format, although it's not moving pictures, Gary Larson or... Um, Brian Kleban, Saul Steinberg, those graphic artists, well, Saul, man, they could do stuff. Yeah, they could. Um, um, Gary Larson contracted um, contracted out to Marv Newland the making of a whole lot of Far Side cartoons and some of the stuff that he did. And that would have, oh, that was a wee while ago. That was in the 90s. But that stuff's okay. still around. We showed it, we showed some of it at the festival in 
2001 or okay. two, I think. Um, you look at um, what's an example that I could give on this year? George Schwitzerbell, uh, Swiss animator. Um, fine arts, trained in fine arts and teaches fine arts in China and he's, uh, he's <laughs> being European his, his career has now extended to the point where he's regarded as a national treasure of Switzerland so he's actually paid uh. a salary, a cultural salary so he has a, 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 an income a regular income and he um, paints, he hand paints with oils onto glass or, or cardboard in a fine art style. So, mm. um, Alexander Alexiev, you know, oil painter, fine, fine, fine oil Not painter. the weightlifter. Not the weightlifter, no. Oh, okay. mm. um, these um, showcases mm -hmm. are a whole lot of different uh, animations all thrown together to give a nice big exposition um, each time. It's the nature of the um, the craft, isn't it? Mm. That they're generally really short. It just takes so long to do anything. It takes so long. Yeah, it does. It can, Laborious. It, 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 it can, they can be long, drawn out um, production events. That's for sure. Sometimes that's because they're very, very complicated to make. Sometimes that's because they're made by people that you know have other jobs and other projects they have to do in the meantime. But also, you know, you're talking about very intense kind of ex explorations of, of um, often singularly imaginative ideas and trying to extend that out into a feature film is just a fool's errand and nobody would even bother trying. No, it would make you feel woozy. It would, and, and, and what's the point? And then you would lose the effect of it. So these are, you know, in many cases they're moments from dreams or they're an idea. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, there are not many poems, single poems that you know, fill a whole book no. for all the same reasons these these films tend to be fairly short. Yeah. All right. Uh, always interesting is the dark hearts section. Love it. Oh, mm. Because, as you say, animation doesn't obey the laws of physics. You can go to some weird places. Oh, yes. Yeah. Give us an example of something that's a standout or a couple. Oh, I think in dark hearts you're probably talking about Wicked Girl. You know, which is a, a, a film that has had a, an impact almost everywhere it's screened. Um, the way I would put it is a little bit like this for people that have this impression that animation is, you know, Pixar and family stuff that you see in the hardtop cinemas. In actual fact, if you get this international community of auteur independent animators, and as I said, 4,000 of them, if you sat down 4,000 writers, painters, poets or whatever and asked them to do their thing, a lot of them would be exploring um, issues that they want people to focus on. A lot of them would be deliberately confronting an audience with something they think has to be done, so on and so forth. Wicked Girl takes on the story of um, somebody that was quite close to the filmmaker. Um, it deals with the issue of um, not just child ab abuse, but the willful negligence to prosecute the issue of child abuse when it becomes when it becomes when the abuse of individual children becomes flagrantly obvious to all involved. Um, it's about the 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 willful blind eye, if you like, of even families, let alone authorities, but even families, in the clear and certain fact that a young child's being abused. And it does it in this incredibly... It draws you in. It, it appears to be a story. At the beginning, it appears to be a story about something else, and then mm. you become aware. And it's, it's almost... 
it's the the sense that if we you know this idea that if we see something wrong and say nothing about it even if we never participated in the crime how complicit are we mm. now so this is a film and there's nothing you can do about what happens in the film but it uh, it brings up this this notion of you know how long have we stood by and and watched this happen and said nothing animation doesn't really get a great showcase on a regular basis um, you know, outside of the, you know, and there are some wonderful, entertaining, and sometimes thought-provoking cartoons on mm. TV. But mm. animation is an art form. Where do you go to see it? Is it just an interstitial interlude on SBS or something? Well, even SBS um, here, really. I mean, and this is why we're doing it. I mean, yeah, some even quite a bit of this stuff winds up on the internet. There's a lot of anything on the internet. Mm. But and and look, I watch it. I'm not. You know, opposed to that per se, but you, you do not see the detail, you do not immerse yourself cannot immerse yourself in it in the same way as seeing it on the big screen and, right. and, and most of these things have been designed visually in terms of their framing, in terms of their sound, in terms of the impact they're supposed to have to be seen on the big screen and yeah, look, in, in in New Zealand and Australia in particular, there are very, very few, if any, opportunities for this stuff to be seen on a cinema screen other than in a festival like animation. Now, it's a little bit different in Europe, you know, where these things are shown in kind of different cinema settings. Well, but probably a nightly four-hour showcase in some, Estonia. Yeah, oh, well, in Estonia, <laughs> this is kind of stuff shown all the time. Right. You know, but, but, and that's, that's all sort of part of the, like, the thing I love about Estonia is, like, everything in Estonia has a cultural dimension in a way that I've, you just do not see anywhere else in the world. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, how interesting. Mm. Okay, well, take the opportunity to enjoy this showcase because, as we just heard, it's a reasonably rare thing. Crazy, t the themes, I'll tell you what they are, Crazy Town, because they're reasonably des descriptive, Dark Hearts, Morph and Move, Handmade, there's an international showcase, and then a special section just for Estonia. Um, Malcolm Turner, thank you very much for coming in, and we look forward to the Animation Enclave at the International New Zealand International Film Festival. Oh, when is the um, animation one happening? 10 to 12 August it rolls, so it's yeah. over a long weekend in the Encore Week. Great times, 7 in the afternoon and early evening. Couldn't be better down um, in the city. Okay. And grab yourself the New Zealand International Film Festival uh, program. And this will be going around the country. Apologies. A small one uh, to the rest of the country. A lot of people take time off or travel to Auckland uh, for the beginning of this, but they'll be doing the rounds as well. So don't cry.